you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Courtney Reagan filling in tonight for Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Jeff Mills. Tonight on Fast, Amazon primed the company kicking off its seventh annual Prime Day today. But will the company and other retailers be able to deliver for investors? Plus, Bitcoin goes bust. Prices heading towards their January lows as a crackdown in China roils the market. Our very own Bitcoin baller BK is here to break down the move. And spoiler alert, did Steven Spielberg just deliver a major plot twist for the streaming space? What his new deal could mean in the race for original content. But we start with a major rebound on Wall Street. The S&P rising nearly percent and a half. The Dow notching its best gain since March as markets try to recover from last week's losses. This is Fed Chair Jay Powell gets ready to appear before the House tomorrow. Details from his testimony released in just the past half an hour. And Elon Moy has the breaking details. Hi, Elon. Hi, Courtney. Well, Fed Chair Jay Powell characterized the increase in inflation over the past few months as notable, but he emphasized that it still appears to be transitory. Now, those comments are from his written testimony ahead of the hearing tomorrow before the House Coronavirus Committee. He said the jump in inflation was due to base effects, past increases in oil prices, a rebound in consumer spending and supply chain bottlenecks. Now, he made no mention of when the Fed might hike rates or the earlier forecast for liftoff from last week, but he repeated the Fed's commitment to supporting the economy until the recovery is complete. He also warned about the slowing pace of vaccinations and pointed to new strains of the virus as a potential economic risk. Now, tomorrow's hearing will also focus on the Fed's emergency lending facilities during the pandemic. Powell said the Fed's actions unlocked $2 trillion of funding for businesses, nonprofits, and state and local governments. And ultimately, he argued that helped prevent businesses from closing and workers from losing their jobs. However, I can tell you that Republicans, like the committee's ranking member, Representative Steve Scalise, do intend to confront Powell over inflation. They've turned this into both an economic and political talking points. Those are some of the landmines that Powell will have to dodge tomorrow. But separately today, he and other heads of financial regulatory agencies did meet with President Biden for what the White House described as a status check on the financial system. The White House saying that the regulators reported the financial system is in strong condition and that financial risks are being mitigated by robust capital and liquidity levels in the banking system healthy balance sheets among households and the ongoing economic recovery. So, Courtney, a healthy status update on the financial system from the White House. Back to you. Elon, thank you very much. It will be interesting to watch that tomorrow, especially the questioning when it comes to inflation. Tim, what do you think the markets want to hear out of Powell tomorrow? Anything different or do they want the same message that he gave before? Well, it, it was to me a softer message than than what I think he delivered last week when I, I think it was important for him to get ahead of the inflation discussion. And, and so I, like, I, the fact that we heard healthy this, healthy that, um, the strength of the banks really is what comes through here in the sense that, uh, look, what was great from a market's perspective today, Corey, is that we saw that 10-year trickle down to 135. Um, 
intraday. It closed you know, up near 149. So you had a major move in the 10-year. You started to see some of those growth trades come back into vogue when, in fact, the trade that was in vogue towards the end of the week was the one that said uh, big cap breakout because effectively the, said, the Fed's jumping in here faster than people had thought. So, look, we're going to get that, – that's one of 16 Fed – discussions, Fed leaders, Fed speak on the tape. And I think we're going to be digesting a lot. And I think we continue to. As I said Thursday or Friday, I think it's really tough for the Fed to, to strike a dovish tone, however, any time in the third quarter. And I think the markets need to remember that. But again, um, growth is there. And, and the recovery today in markets around energy and financials and things, it wasn't really about mega cap tech. It was really about growth. Yeah, commodities as well. I mean, Guy, on Friday, it seems the market was spooked by what Bullard had to say on CNBC, even though he's not a voting member. And even if the Fed does raise rates sooner than expected, that's still 18 months out. So what happened today? Did we all say, wait, 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 we overreacted on Friday. Let's get us back to where we were before. It's interesting. We talked about this on our call at 1230. I, I said, listen, I really don't know what happened today. I think maybe it's some of the effects that Tim talked about. Maybe it's that quad witch or whatever the expiration on Friday wound up being. Um, I think that was part of it, perhaps. I don't have an explanation other than the fact that I think the market's realizing that interest rates probably going to hang out around here. And I think banks liked it. And this commodity trade that Tim's talked about for a while, although it, when these things go lower, it feels like the trade is over and the world's coming to an end for that sector. That's typically the time to step in. And we've talked about it seemingly now for the last nine months. I still think the banks do work, absolutely. And I think these resource trades work as well. To describe what happened today, I really don't know. In terms of Bullard, quickly, yeah. it seems like they're floating. He's floating himself out there as a bit of a test balloon. Now, this is the second or third time that he's done that. It's interesting to see he sort of takes the other side, maybe just to sort of gauge where the market is in terms of his comments as opposed to what we hear from Jerome Powell all the time. Right. And Karen Guy brought up commodity prices. Tim talked about it, too. We did see sort of a recovery there. Crude oil, also price of oil around $73 the barrel. How do you think that plays into Fed's message when he goes, or Fed, the Jay Powell's message when he goes before Congress and has to talk about inflation and uh, more mainstream things like the trickle down to gas prices and and not add more fear into the market. Yeah, I think he's going to get pressed hard on those, right? Those are things that we really see, oil prices, right? We see, I think, home prices will probably get pushed on that. But given what's happened in commodities other than oil in the last few, I don't know, couple of weeks, I mean, we saw copper really come in a lot. Lumber we saw really come in as well. So I feel like he has a little bit of room. I do think his, you know, he's been pushing this transitory inflation theory for a while. And there's some evidence that he's actually right about that. So I think... Uh, you know, he has he has a little bit of wiggle room, but I don't think he's going to do anything materially different. And I always find it sort of funny how we react so, you know, dramatically to something that's going to happen at the end of 22 or 23. <laughs> Are they going to start to raise rates? You know, maybe they'll start to taper a little bit. But today we got to re- react heavily on it. That doesn't quite make sense to me. So I think the market just sort of overreacted Friday and now it's back and it's like nothing ever happened or at Thursday afternoon. That makes me feel better that you say that, Karen, because sometimes I think, gosh, even if we raise rates, it's 18 months away, maybe at the earliest. And it's probably just going to go a hair at a time. Jeff, what do you hey, think hold on, about? Court, 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 court. Sorry. I, I know. First of all, we love having you here, um, <laughs> but we have to establish something. He's okay. not Jeff. Oh, 
He is the general. Oh. So, pa apologies. Okay. That was, that was rude, but I had to do it. No, I'm, I'm glad you corrected me. <laughs> okay. The general, then. Let's get this right. What do you think uh, is going to happen here when we hear from Jay Powell and his testimony and also having to thread this needle carefully with not spooking the markets about an event that may be two years away? Yeah, I, I, it's, it's, a, it's a big question, and Tim, I appreciate that. You, got, you always have to get the general's name now. correct. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I think that I think you're going to have a lot of Fed officials out this week trying to shore up the messaging. You had John Williams out today, definitely took a little bit more of a dovish tone. Uh, I don't think that a lot has changed relative to the Fed's outlook on inflation. You know, Powell's comments last week weren't necessarily consistent with that. The press conference wasn't consistent with that. And interestingly, I think you got a little bit of a mixed message from rates and credit spreads. So rates came down, but then credit spreads tightened as well. That, that's not necessarily, quote, normal, and I don't think that's going to continue. I think it ultimately resolves with rates drifting a little bit higher because I do actually think the Fed is going to let inflation continue to run here a little bit. And we saw that big rotation out of cyclicals and value. Usually when you see growth do well, it's when rates are falling and credit spreads are creeping wider a little bit. And I don't necessarily think that's going to be the case here going forward. And at least by my eye, value looks oversold. If you look at the pure value index, just as an example, 28% of those names uh, above the 50-day. So that was similar to what we saw last fall before value took off a little bit. And even the rally that we've seen in tech, a little bit tepid from a momentum perspective, only 45% of the tech index above their own 50-day. So I look at sectors like financials, materials, they look pretty flush to me. So I don't think that we've seen a true leadership shift. I wouldn't abandon the value cyclical trade until leading economic indicators like PMI start to roll over, till credit spreads start to widen. And I don't think you have to start to worry about that till you push into the second half of next year. Tim, what do you make of the value trade? Well, I, I, I think banks offer even more value and the credit dynamics the general talked about are, are things that are really important. I, I just want to point out that I think technically what happened last week with the Fed and kind of a reset on, and first of all, uh, bank, bank trades are pretty crowded. I, I know we had talked also about uh, the bank, Merrill Lynch, uh, fund manager survey calling commodities the most overcrowded trade. Um, banks have been overcrowded. Uh, you've kind of set the stage by giving mega cap tech some ammunition to break higher that's great for overall markets while you reset expectations a bit on banks and some of these industrial trades that ultimately uh, i do think are value trades i do think have the ability to run so i, I what happened last week uh, i think largely equity positive and i think that's what i hear us all saying Guy, when I look at the markets every day and we always look at these indices, the Russell has really been making some runs. I mean, any small tech interest in some of these names? It's interesting. I, you know, I think interest rates for the Russell are very positive. Interest rates go higher typically benefits the Russell. If you think about it, higher rates means there's growth. Growth typically is good for the Russell. But then it gets to a point where it's not. And I think when we reach that 175 level in the 10-year, that's when the Russell said, you know, we don't like this. I hate using the term, um, but... For the Russell specifically, the IWM, this 150 area is probably a sweet spot in terms of Which what term the IWM. Which like? The sweet, sweet, spot. sweet spot. Oh, it, it drives me what? crazy. Really? No, Why? Because we just spot. say too much I mean, over you? It's, it's one of those terms you hear all day long. <laughs> the, the other one is a Tina, which drives me crazy. I mean, don't make me. I could spend an hour just on things that make me nuts. Nobody <laughs> okay. wants to hear it. Just, but I think that's part of it. To, go to answer spot, your though. question for the Russell, I think we're right in that sort of the sweet spot of the bat for where the IWM is. As long as rates stay at one and a half or thereabouts in the 10 year, I think the IWM can continue to go higher. All right. Fair enough. Well, our next guest says the market is doing exactly what 
what it should be doing, rallying. So let's bring in CNBC contributor Tom Lee, Fundstrat's head of research. Tom, then does that mean what happened on Friday didn't make any sense to you? It was the wrong way for stocks to go? Uh, I mean, I think all of last week was a lot of noise because you had two things that were going to have markets pretty nervous. You know, one was FOMC, uh, but the second was quad witching. And, you know, as you guys reported, uh, it was the second largest um, ever in history. And, you know, if you look at the last five quad witchings, the market has always had big chop. I mean, three to five percent downside. So last week was just a week where there's a lot of noise. And so we've been talking a lot about energy and financials when we're talking about, uh, you know, sectors that we should be focused on in this environment. What do you make of those plays right now? Um, for investors to, to put capital work in those groups, I think they have to be convinced that we're not late cycle, you know, earlier mid cycle in terms of the expansion and, um, you know, monetary policy matters. But I think from when you look at things like pent up demand or consumer liquidity, or the potential for corporate capex to really surge this year or buybacks to surge. I mean, these are things that are pro-cyclical dynamics. And I mean, this week we're going to get a lot of data that is supportive of that. And so, yeah, I think being overweight energy and epicenter stocks makes a ton of sense. Financials, we downgraded a couple weeks ago, but not because we don't like the group long-term. It's just that they're the most sensitive to rates. And I think, you know, interest rates are undershooting expectations right now. Hey, Tom, it's Karen. Thanks for coming on. Always love to hear what you have to say. And uh, usually you're spot on. I have a question about com- uh, commodities. So you, you like energy. Is that different than commodities because of this push toward renewables and maybe phasing out oil? Or is it all part of a growing economy? Uh, yeah, it's a, it is a little nuanced, Karen, because I, I think some of the commodities like lumber and corn were getting hoarded because of all the things happening in the supply chain. In fact, I'm sure a lot of purchasing managers were double ordering just in case. But oil, I think, is different uh, because of the tightening of supply because capital spending has dropped so much. Um, Rystad data shows it's almost $300 billion just over the past two years at a time when demand could be surprising. So even though ESG and other things have kept equity managers away from the energy stocks, I think the supply-demand dynamics for oil are so good that the energy stocks have have the most upside of any sector right now. So, Tom, in general, if we see a day like Friday where we see a sell-off that's fairly broad, what would you be doing there? Are you still going to be stock-picking in the certain sectors that you like the most, or is that a time where you could play more broadly? Um, I I mean, I think... Friday was uh, noisy because of quad witching. And if someone was more, had a a longer time horizon, let's just say one month to three months, I mean, it's kind of a gift uh, because, you know, when stocks get sold for no reason and there's no bad news, and and we have to keep in mind, falling interest rates is actually very bullish because it's lowering cost of capital, it's lowering cost of borrowing, and it's actually helping equity risk premium too. So it's quite bullish for stocks. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that all the losses from last week are erased over the next five days. Um, and we still think S&P can get to 4,400 before the end of the, before the end of this month. Tom Lee, thank you very much for joining us. I want to go to the general and get your thoughts on what Mr. Strong. Lee had to say. <laughs> nice. Strong. Yeah. 
No, I tend to agree with Tom. Look, I mean, we've been in the cyclical value cam for a while. I know Tom talks about also liking FANG right now. So if you want to be in growth or tech, we like sort of the more reasonably valued areas of those sectors and markets as well. So I think that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, in terms of kind of what we're seeing with the volatility uh, in the near term, I think we've been seeing this stealth correction in the market for some time now. If you just look at the percentage of stocks trading above their short-term averages, it was extremely high, over 95% a couple of months ago. That's incrementally come down over the past few months. But that's not unusual for this phase of the cycle, uh, sort of the second year of a new bull market. Usually you see this big thrust off the bottom, and then year two can be a little bit choppy. And I, I think this year has been very strong so far, but I wouldn't necessarily be surprised if we saw some chop here over the next couple of months, but that wouldn't worry me. So to Tom's point about being a little bit earlier on in the cycle, I think that that makes sense. You know, look to 76, 04, 83, 2010. Those were year two off the bottom. You saw some volatility, but also very early in in multi-year bull markets. Got it. Thank you very much. That's from the general. I want to sing that commercial, though. 1-800. Please don't. There's there's a lot of generals out there, but I mean, you know, of the generals. No, he's he's the one. No, he's our guy. Jeff Mills is, there are a lot of generals. He is the the The, patent of financial television. See what I did there? Really quickly, you know, speaking of the strength of general patent guy. and general Mills, (laughs) the energy trade that we were just talking about the, the keys here to me are, first of all, if you look at that future strip, you have a case where it's now up around 64. So, you know, 64 dollars longer term tells you uh, you've got uh, you've you've changed the price outlook for oil significantly. But the most important thing investing in energy is that these companies are saying all the right things on spending, on CapEx uh, and on balance sheet improvement. And it's a very different sector than investing in five years ago. So not only are valuations strong, not only is the demand side of it picked up dramatically, but these companies are run differently. And these valuations, I think, are even more attractive because you're not just this is not just a speculation. This is not just a trade. It's an investment now. Ooh, an investment. That's a good one. Well, coming up, the race for your wallet is heating up as Amazon's Prime Day sparks some major price cuts across the retail space. Plus, airlines facing big staffing shortages at a critical time for the industry. We'll break down what it means for the stocks. Don't go anywhere. Much more fast money right after this. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. The airline industry facing some major staffing shortages just as demand for air travel is picking back up. Let's get to Phil Lebeau with the latest details. Hi, Phil. 
Hey, Courtney, when it comes to staffing for the airlines, I've got a coup, two pieces of news here, one that shows the positive, one that shows the bumpiness that the airlines are going through. On the positive side, take a look at shares of Delta. The company, late this afternoon, in an internal memo sent to the staff, uh, John Lauder, who is in charge of uh, the operations there, basically said, look, we're going to add a 1,000 new pilots by next summer. They're going to need them as they continue bringing back flights, not only domestically, but over time internationally as well. By the way, they've got, what, about 12,000 pilots right now at Delta. On the bumpy side, take a look at shares of American Airlines. This story has gotten a lot of attention. They canceled essentially a little over 300 flights uh, this weekend for a variety of reasons, one of those being staffing, not having enough staff for some of the flights. In addition, there were weather issues, maintenance issues. So as a sen- as They made the decision, look, we're going to dial it back. By the way, canceling anywhere from 4 to 6 percent of their mainline flights this weekend. So for American, for all the airlines, what you're seeing is the uneasy transition into adding more flights. They have staffing, but they're going to have to add more uh, in the summer and as they go into the fall. And this is the reason why. Airline passenger levels, they're now down anywhere from 20 to 30 percent. And you see it increasing Week after week after week, five of the last 10 days, the daily passenger levels topped 2 million for the day. And American has been among the most aggressive in terms of adding back flights. They wanted to be ready for all these people who are ready to fly. That's why they've added essentially 19.5 million seats. That's how many they will have by the end of August. By the way, that's an increase of about 3% compared to where they are uh, right now. United going to be adding 22% in terms of more seats between now and and August. So the bottom line is this, guys, as you take a look at the shares of the, the airline stocks, I know some people will sit there and say, what are they doing? People want to fly. Now they're canceling flights and Americans going to draw down their schedule about 1% compared to what they originally planned for July. The bottom line is this. It's going to be a lumpy transition for some airlines as they add back flights and they want to make sure that they have the staffing in place. Phil, forgive me, but is the problem that the pilots have to get retrained? Where do the pilots go there, that there's they a little bit of that. flying these routes? Remember a lot of those pilots who said, what, you're offering a buyout back in 2020 when the airlines had to cut? And and by the way, Courtney, at the time when the airlines went to the Trump administration, they said, look, we would like to have $50 billion to tide us over until the fall when they thought the traffic would return. Regardless of the fact that that didn't happen, their point was you want to be ready when there's a snapback in demand, which is what they were expecting early on before anybody realized how bad the pandemic would be. And when that didn't happen, a lot of the airlines had to make choices in terms of offering buyouts. And a lot of pilots and other staff members, they took those buyouts. You think those people are going to come back and get the bottom of the seniority line? Not a chance. So for airlines, they've got to make some tough choices. Well, Phil, while we have you, we're also getting some news on Nikola. Looks like they're going to file to sell up to 18 million shares. And take a look at shares of Nikola under a little bit of pressure. And why? You would sit there if you're an investor and say, okay, you're going to further dilute this. And when is Nikola going to pay off in terms of future revenues? No indication at this point. So you're looking at more dilution with no indication as to when this this bet, if you are an investor, is going to pay off. Yeah, shares of Nikola, to your point, Phil, down 3% here after hours on that news. Phil Laveau, thank you very much. You bet. Okay, let's trade this. I want to go to Karen. I feel like I haven't heard from Karen in a while. What do you make of uh, the airline trade with some of this new news or Nicola? Take your pick. Ladies' choice. Oh, gosh. Um, (laughs) I guess the airlines. Okay. (laughs) 
But I mean, also, I think the pilot thing is probably exacerbated by, you know, a lot of people who would have wanted to become pilots probably decided against that, thinking, all right, there, you know, this is a pretty bad industry for a while. So I don't even know that there's, you know, what the bench is or new players coming up from the minor leagues. I have no idea. So this is problematic for American, you can imagine if you're one of those flyers. But that whole space, I just, I feel like the market completely ignores how much debt there is. And I know there have been great trades and I have missed them, hotels, airlines, all of that. Um, but I, they still have just a ton of debt. And so I feel like, you know, the valuation, the stocks may have not reached their peak again, but the enterprise value is bigger than where it was for a lot of them. So I'm out, not in the airline trade. Guy, I'm out of my peripheral vision. I see you nodding your head. I just like to listen to what Karen has to say. So I find myself a participant <laughs> and a viewer of the show simultaneously, which I would think is interesting. Simultaneously. Pardon me? Simultaneously. Simultaneously. Yeah. That's yeah, a pronunciation thing. <laughs> Aluminium. Spirit Aero <laughs> Systems is the one that comes in. You know, you're thinking about this. International travel is going to be a challenge, I think, for a number of different reasons. And that's obviously wide-body planes. If you look at Spirit, 85% of their backlog are narrow-body domestic travel. I think they've run their business better. Stock was up big today. I think if you're looking for a downstream play, it comes in the form of SPR. General, are you worried about the uh, economic ripple effect, though, of these airlines? If they can't get up and running the way that they want to, then what does that mean for hotels? What does it mean for the cities where these flight routes are supposed to be going and everything that surrounds this reopening trade? Yeah, I, I don't know, because it sounds like to me the, the cutting of flights is going to be somewhat short term. I think people are going to be able to travel and you're going to see travel continue to incrementally tick up. So I still think that the reopening for a lot of those service area industries is probably OK. Um, you know, thinking about the airlines in general, typically this is when I would talk about Southwest and say that I like their balance sheet the best and it's probably best in breed. But it's interesting. You know, this is the fourth, fourth time now Southwest has failed at that $64, $65 level over the past five years and this time doing it at a much lower P.E. So I think a lot of the easy money has probably been made in the airlines. We talked a little bit about international travel picking up. So maybe you have some benefit for American and Delta. I'd probably favor Delta there. But as Karen is not, I am not in the airline trade. All right. Makes sense. And I think all of us as passengers need to be a little bit more polite when we're on planes. Mm. I don't know if you guys have seen those videos, but oh boy, people have some bad behavior. Need some manners. Anyway, coming up, Amazon's Prime Day seeing some competition as other retailers launch their own steep discounts. We're digging in on those deals. Plus, Netflix goes Hollywood after striking a major production deal with legendary director Steven Spielberg. We'll break down the blockbuster partnership. Stick with us. There's more fast right after this. For more than a decade, Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed Internet. But the barriers to get connected go well beyond affordability. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at Comcast.com slash Project Up. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Amazon kicking off its annual Prime Day event today, but it's not the only retailer getting in on the action. Big names like Walmart, Target, Best Buy, they're also slashing prices to compete with the e-commerce giant. So what does it all mean for the retail space? Guy, I know you're such an online shopper. You're you're an expert um, on this. But in all seriousness, when you have a major event from a major player like Amazon, it does change the dynamic and it changes the paradigm. Everybody else has to play catch up. But there's a halo effect. There is a positive halo effect. Shoppers are smart. They know Amazon's having a big sale day, but they shop around, they check around, and it helps. So who wins to that? And you're 100% right. And as I've said a number of times, the next time I buy something on the line will, in fact, be the first time. But it doesn't matter because (laughs) we can talk about the stocks. And I think Tim would agree with this. I know Karen would. Federal Express to me, which was running their business horribly a couple of years ago, is running it much better, almost elegantly now. And margins are better. If Again, you do the math on the back of Federal Express, the earnings they're going to make, put an 18 multiple-ish on the $20 or so they're going to earn, and you're talking about a $360 stock. And by the way, I think I'm being conservative with that. So hmm. I think FedEx works in this environment still. And for those on the radio, FedEx is trading at 293 so 360 is quite an upside. Well, Karen, Guy called you out. So what do you make of the retail play? Would, I know you have a number of consumer names in your portfolio, but do you think it's smarter to play this with a FedEx or a UPS? Well, I think for me, I'm playing with a lot of different things. I love the FedEx story. I love, you know, UPS as well. I think that e-commerce is here to stay, even if the pandemic, you know, fades the sort of sentiment. I think they, in, in actuality, it's here to stay, and they've done a great job rationalizing their business. They have pricing power. We're going to see price increases. So I, I like both FedEx and UPS. I bought some more UPS. I have a lot of FedEx already. But on the uh, the big retailer side, I have my my target is the biggest position. I have a lot of Walmart as well. Third place is Amazon. I was just tweeting. I I've sized it wrong because I'm unhappy if it goes up or if it goes down. So <laughs> clearly don't have the right size position there. But I really like Target. They've done a phenomenal job, not just dealing with the pandemic, but also you know growing their business. They're back to Target now. The people want to go out. People are interested in going to Target. They have you know, their whole home business, the higher margin products are doing better. So, and it's not a crazy multiple there either. So for me, Target, Walmart, Amazon is my my third and smallest in the big retail space. Uh, Mr. Mills or General, how are you uh, playing a day like Prime Day? Is that something that you want to dip your toe into and try to pick a winner? Or in general, are you just saying, look, e-commerce is here to stay? Oh, in general. I, 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 just, I didn't even do it on purpose. Um, e-commerce <laughs> is here to stay. As long as you have a good online presence, you're a winner in my book. What do you make of it? Yeah, I think it's the latter. I, I wouldn't trade around Prime Day specifically, but I, I do think you have to keep in mind some of these huge trends that we're seeing. And I think part of it has to do with this omni-channel, multi-channel distribution. And all channels were tapped last year. I think all channels are being tapped now, and it's probably going to be the case into the future. And it's interesting. I actually came across a piece of research today. It did some estimates on the margins of uh, a fictitious $100 sweater. And the margins are very different depending on how that product is consumed. So if it's shipped from warehouse, it's $36. If it's buy in store, it's $33. But you go down to curbside pickup, ship from store. Some of the things that we're seeing now, the margins are much, much lower. So I want a company that's perfected omni-channel over the past number of years. And Target is a really good example of that. 
That's true. I did that story one time, actually, and I did, in fact, use a sweater example. But since I've done that story, the economics have changed and it has actually gotten a lot better. Target's given us some key examples. But, Tim, you're flagging I don't think I've down. worn a sweater in a decade, by the way. I, really? I, I just, Not a sweater guy. You are sweaters. All right, <laughs> I just so, bought two sweaters yesterday, in okay, fact. Well, in I, person. So, and that, this is why Prime Day is important. The, the trade on Amazon Prime Day is Amazon. Be, because, first of all, if you look at where that chart has gone and where the stock has been struggling to get above 34, 34, 50, 35, you're breaking out now, but it's not so much the 8.3, 8.5 prime day revenues you're going to get. It's the residual revenue, and it's, it's probably $6 billion in the sex, second quarter alone. Amazon is not expensive. When, when you look at it, at basically some of the parts, two, two times GMV of their retail business plus 20 times AWS. I, I don't think it's an expensive stock, and, and I think in this environment, this is exactly when Amazon has run. Um, let alone all these secular tailwinds around e-commerce that we've all just talked about. Amazon, way to go. Before we get out of here, Courtney, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Tim does not wear sweaters. I'm not expecting you to know this, but (laughs) what he has sort of um, created for his own is the Naugahyde vest, which you'll sport from time to time. I mean, he has his own Twitter account. It's it's a little warm for Naugahyde today, first day of summer, but I will, don't, just wait. We'll get the Naugahyde vest there for the end of the season. Okay. Thanks, guys. I can't wait to see that. Coming up, China's crypto crackdown taking a toll on Bitcoin. We'll talk to our own Bitcoin baller, BK, on what's next for the cryptocurrencies. Plus, big news out of the sports betting space. We'll tell you why it could be a game changer for the industry. So you're not going to want to go anywhere. There is more fast money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out Bitcoin dropping another 7% today as China intensifies its crackdown on crypto mining. The news hitting some crypto-related stocks as well. Big names like MicroStrategy and Coinbase falling deep into the red. So let's trade this around. I mean, every time crypto makes a big move, I just don't even know what to make of it. Tim, help me me get this straight. The charts charts look challenging. And, And the charts definitely, I think, whether you are a pure technical chartist or even some of the folks in the middle of this. Uh, I think there's, there's an argument here that there's still a test at 25 uh, to come and, and, and possibly even 20,000, which is something that Carter's talked about. I, I, I think, look, a lot of the short-term sentiment is around China's restrictions. I think there's also a lot of sentiment really uh, around last week and, and where the Fed is. I mean, I thought it was very interesting how Bitcoin kind of grew up last week in, in some sense. It behaved as if the correlations uh, inverse to the dollar and to Fed interest rate policy and hawkishness, dovishness was very impressive for an asset class that at times people thought really wasn't about being a store of value or digital gold. So that's an interesting observation, I think, from last week. Hmm. For more on this, let's bring in our own crypto baller, Brian Kelly. He joins us on the fast line. Uh, BK, what do you make of the move in Bitcoin today? As Tim said, the charts are challenging. Yeah, no, I think actually Tim made some really good points here. The charts are challenging. Um, If you think about what's happened over the last, uh, let's call it, four to five days or the last week or so, you have you did have Bitcoin trade with the Federal Reserve, which is something we have not seen in the history of Bitcoin. As well, you do have this negative China news, uh, which, you know, it seems like every couple of years China bans Bitcoin and Bitcoin bounces back. Um, so in the long run, I, I still think we're OK. But I, I agree, you know, it, 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 it looks heavy and, it you know, we'll see what happens at 30,000 here. We really need to hold 30,000. I mean, BK, a move of nine and a half percent is pretty severe for most things. For Bitcoin, not so much. Whatever will keep the volatility of 
this cryptocurrency in check or, or will it not? Is that just the nature of what we're dealing with when we're talking about cryptocurrency? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. I mean, one, this is normal volatility for Bitcoin. It is a normal part of, of the bull cycles that Bitcoin had had. I mean, in 2017, we had multiple 30 to 50 percent pullbacks uh, in these assets. So it'll the volatility will die down if this becomes a currency. And so as you have more players than just speculators in there, you have uh, companies using it globally in the supply chain. They're going to want to hedge risk. They're going to not necessarily be natural buyers. They may be sellers. So that'll tamp down the volatility. And, you know, folks like me, volatility junkies like me, will probably be bored with the volatility. But it'll be a good thing for Bitcoin because that means it has matured into a full-blown currency. Hey, BK, it's Jeff Mills. How's it going? Um, two real quick questions for you. So um, we're talking about the charts being challenged. I, I've heard a number of different downsides cited. You mentioned 30,000. Uh, people have pointed to that December 2017 high at 20,000. Where do you think the most likely area of support is, number one? And then I know today there were some headlines flying around about some of the chip makers, uh, the impact there relative to uh, some of the technology for Bitcoin mining. So what do you think the impact is there long term, if any? Yeah, so in the short term, you know, 30000 on Bitcoin, we have to hold that. Um, you know, the way there's, there's a lot of leverage in Bitcoin right now. So if we break through 30000 you could see a pretty swift downdraft like we saw a few weeks ago. Uh, so we'll see what happens with that. In terms of the chip makers and what's happening with mining, you know, you're seeing the hash rate come down. And the hash rate is basically how much mining power is directed at the Bitcoin network at any given time. And that's because the Chinese miners shut off those machines. But those machines aren't gone forever. They're actually migrating to other parts of the world. So in the long run, what you're going to see is a more diversified and decentralized mining infrastructure that will likely be a lot more green than it was in China. Uh, but until we get to that point, yeah, you're going you're gonna to hear about uh, chip makers not getting orders and all of that. There are machines for sale, uh, and you can pick up some some mining machines, used mining machines, which, you know, you may not need the extra uh, chip, the brand new chip for that. But eventually this will come back and you're going to want to put the latest and greatest technology towards the Bitcoin mining network. Thank you for calling in, BK. Yunus Yun was actually talking about how some of these the equipment is actually being shipped from China to Maryland or Virginia. She had confirmed that a, a, a big amount of it actually earlier today. Thank you. So the move in Bitcoin also affecting companies supplying chips to Bitcoin miners, as we've been talking about. Let's get over to Tony Zhang with more on how options traders are positioning themselves in some of these names. Tony, what are you seeing out there? What's the impact, the ripple effect? Yeah, Courtney. So today in Taiwan Taiwan Semiconductors, which is the primary foundry for NVIDIA, which are the chips that are primarily used for Bitcoin mining, we've seen some significant activity here. While the TSM options were fairly average for today, puts did outpace calls by a fair amount. 50% more puts traded today on TSM, perhaps betting on some of these chip makers seeing some further declines or maybe Bitcoin seeing some further declines. 
In this particular case, we saw one trader buy about 7,000 contracts of the July 2nd 111 puts, paying about $1.17 for this. What's interesting about these puts is that they expire in just nine trading days. So this is a trader who laid out almost $800,000 in premium to bet that Taiwan Semiconductors will decline about 3.7% over the next nine trading days. Uh, you know, whether this is a short-term bet back to the 200-day moving average for Taiwan Semiconductors or maybe a larger structural bet on Bitcoin or NVIDIA, this is a way to play for some further downside with limited risk using options in equities. Hmm, 800,000. Tony, thanks. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show Friday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Well, coming up, major news out of the sports betting world that could be a real game changer for the industry. We'll bring you the details next. Plus, did one of Hollywood's biggest directors just change his tune on streaming? We've got the star-studded trade when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. There's a brand new way to play the sports betting craze, and it's attracting some big name backers. Contessa Brewer joins us with the very latest details. Contessa, what's the score? Well, Courtney, these big name investors are throwing their weight around a disruptive platform. It's sports gambling meets stock trading. Sport trade allows gamblers not only to bet on the game, but then to trade those bets on an exchange the way you trade stocks. So you make a bet, the odds change, and you can sell that bet before the game ends or even before the game begins. And this won't charge a vigorish. That's the bookmaker's fee to even accept a bet. So these transaction costs for the bettors are lower. And we can exclusively report now a new $36 million funding round from lead investors, Jump Capital, NASDAQ Ventures, Impression Ventures, Hudson River Trading, Tower Research Ventures. And then Jim Murren, the former CEO of MGM Resorts, and Tom Whitman, the former CEO of the NASDAQ Stock Exchange, also getting in on the action here, Sport Trade is anticipating clearing some regulatory hurdles in New Jersey and launching there this year and then rolling out in other states in 2022, Courtney. This sounds like a very fascinating platform. And as Mr. Seymour is keeping uh, tabs on the bets yeah, uh, while also talking stocks, this feels like the yeah, perfect Yeah, Contessa, Jake DeGrom has four strikeouts through two innings, by the way, just <laughs> in case you, I know you're tracking that. We could be betting on this, too. So let's trade it. Yeah, let's, let's trade it. Let's trade it. So, so, look, the sports betting space is alive and well. In fact, we had Patrick Kane from the Action Network on our show. Uh, they recently were bought by, uh, by, by a collective out of Denmark. And, and ultimately, the, the, the whole story here is both betting and the analysis of betting around sports, but the deals with all the major indices. We've talked about this on this network also, how it's almost imperative that major media find some way to attach themselves to sports betting and interactivity and the opportunity. And again, the major sports leagues also are partnering with these bettors. I, I still like DraftKings. I realize there's been a lot of uh, pushback, both, I think, just really on valuation. I, I realize there was a, a short report out there on DraftKings last week that I, I, I don't think goes after the current business. It certainly attacked uh, the foundation of a couple of the early deals that they did do. But when you're buying into the sports betting space at this point, you really are ultimately buying the addressable market size and those players that are going to take market share early. And that's what you're buying with DraftKings. I wish we had more time to talk about this, but we got to wrap this one up because coming up, one of Hollywood's biggest directors just inked a deal with Netflix. So grab your popcorn. We're diving into streaming and that trade next when Fast Money returns.
Welcome back to Fast Money. E.T.'s creator is coming to Netflix. The streaming giant inking a multi-year deal with Steven Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment to make new feature films for the service. The move the latest salvo in the streaming wars. Amazon last month acquired MGM Studios for $8.5 billion in an effort to boost its own original content. Spielberg has been skeptical about streaming in the past. You might remember when he said something, Karen, like they, the, the content doesn't deserve Oscars. I don't know, maybe an Emmy, but perhaps he's changing his tune. I'm just excited to get some Spielberg content on Netflix. But what do you make of, the, of, of this move, Karen? Well, I thought it was really interesting, for one. I mean, we've seen, you know, the content wars heat up. This is really kind of taking it to another level. But I think him in particular, because of his sentiment about that and things being in theaters, it's another, you know, I... I Reddit will be unhappy with this, but to me, this sort of, you know, reaction is this is not good for theaters, right? This is one of the biggest sort of fans of the theater experience in Spielberg and a, certainly an important voice in movies. Sort of now, is he playing, has he gone to the dark side, the streaming side? I'm not really sure, but it can't be great for theaters is my suspicion. So that for that and many other reasons, I wouldn't be in the theater space, but I certainly would not short it. That is for sure. <laughs> yeah. So the general, I would like to ask you about uh, your thoughts here. So maybe maybe you're in the same camp that this isn't great for AMC, but is it is it a positive for Netflix? Yeah. So I, I think Karen's right. It validates that trend towards streaming. And look, with Netflix specifically, the valuation continues to come in. So I think that that's certainly a positive. And they've shown that they're capable of sustaining pretty strong top line growth uh, because they have pricing power and they raise their prices and customer churn numbers remain OK. Um, so I think this is all generally positive for Netflix over the long term. I think right now from where we stand today, I do prefer Disney a bit. It was my final trade a week or so ago. Mm. I think you know, they benefit from streaming. I think they're going to continue to have a re-rating of that multiple, but then they also benefit from the reopening. So Disney now, but this is certainly all positive for Netflix long term. Thank you very much. Well, up next, your final trade. It's time for the final trade. Let's go around the corn. Horn. Corn? Horn? Karen, what's yours? <laughs> yes, my summer solstice trade is URI. Stock's down like 56 bucks. The whole infrastructure fluff is out of it. I like it right here. It is a summer solstice. Huh. Jeff, what's yours? So oversold and near support, that's what I've been looking for on the value side after last week. I think JP Morgan definitely fits the bill there. I think the curve ultimately re-steepens, good for banks, JPM. Mr. Seymour. It took him a couple seconds to respond to you because you called him Jeff. Uh, XOP oh, yeah. is responding, and I'll tell you what, it was up 5% <laughs> today after a reset next week. I think energy stocks look great. I messed up. Guy. FedEx, Courtney. Okay, FedEx. There you go. Thank you for watching Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.